Is that what I'm saying? Rough Trade Radio. 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 What's that? Welcome back to the Retro Podcast. This week, we've got a special for you as we invited author David Stubbs to sit down with producer and DJ Trevor Jackson to discuss his new book and our book of the month for August, Mars by 1980, The Story of Electronic Music. That's coming up very soon, but it's also a new week and therefore new releases, which I'll be chatting to you about in just a sec. Let's play something to get going. I've got the brand new single from London post-punk outfit H Grimace. It's called The Body and it's a riffy, juddering dream. Check it out.
So that was H Grimace and The Body. And the band are actually going to be playing Rough Trade Bristol in November. Details of which will be announced very, very soon. So do keep a lookout for that. New releases this week then. And we finally have Rex Orange County's 2017 Apricot Princess on a physical, physical format. Uh, it's a lovely limited orange vinyl. It's the sound of falling in love with lashings of jazzy piano. Here's one from the record. It's our album of the week this week in both the US and the UK. This is television so far so good. I can be myself and I hope you can be yourself as well Cause I can make you feel alright And there was so much happiness that we were still yet to find I said that you can call me Alex, baby Welcome to my life But don't you worry, don't you, don't worry, girl No, I'm not sure if I'm into you you checked i was probably so sad and confused i don't know no i don't know what you love but if you're looking for something new i know somebody that you could choose what about me what about me what about me and you together something that could really last forever what about me Together, something that could really last forever. begin to wonder why I guess that I'd be lying to myself because who the fuck would be dumb enough to reject an offer oh what an offer now two two ten one five couple hours can change your life Frank saying oh what a night what a night what the fuck is a girlfriend I'ma need advice maybe I should go outside so I could get a fucking life I made a friend and she spent the night now I'm in love and she remains in my life back when we spoke in Europe I need insurance on my since I can't get hurt again I could just be happy by the end of this song But if by the time you hear it you are already gone And it didn't go to plan Then why should I continue in this life When there's no
out in tears when they hear this is that so wrong That was Rex Orange County. Also out this week, he's come a long way since we first heard him, but Ross from Friends delivers a debut album of heavily saturated sonics on Flying Lotus's Brain Feeder label. Also to note is the new one from Iggy Pop and Underworld. They're back with a four-track EP titled Tea Time Dub Encounters. We've got a lovely reissue of The Flaming Lips's second album, Oh My God, The Flaming Lips. And limited copies come with a slip mat, sticker, badge and poster. Fun times. Want you to hear this one though. This is Australian band Fantastic Furniture. Um, they released their debut album of the same name this week and they were formed in the hallowed basement of Frankie's Pizza in Sydney. Uh, this is a really enjoyable record out on Transgressive uh, and here's a great one from it. This is Fucking and Rolling. Fantastic. Ha, ha. 
So that was really rolling and really fucking great. Next up, an author, David Stubbs, sat down with producer, DJ and friend of Rough Trade, Trevor Jackson, to discuss Mars by 1980, his brand new book that charts the evolution of electronic music. Here they are in conversation with, of course, some music thrown in. Rough Trade Radio. Mars by 1980. Um, I think the title is one of the best things I've had, actually, if I say so myself. Um, it's um, because, um, you know, I think in a sense, it's all, a lot of what the book is about. It's almost about the 20th century. Yeah. And partly almost my kind of lament for the 20th century. I find the 21st century a little bit difficult to ho- cope with. The idea of being in a kind of post-space age, you know, which is kind of where we are at the moment. So I think, you know, one of the things, one of the allure of, you know, there's a sort of retrospective fascination, you know, a sort of retrofuturistic fascination for me with about electronic music and some of the kind of hopes and ideals it represented, you know, and it's particularly it's kind of earliest days, you know, almost with the sort of transformation of humanity. And I mean, people like the futurists who are so excited about the arrival of the machine age, they just imagined all kinds of miraculous developments for humans, you know, human beings and human evolution that were going to take place, you know, that people would be able to sort of, individuals would be able to fly and things like that, you yeah. know, using sort of, sort of <clears throat> you know. So, when, where does, so the book starts where? What period does the well, book start? Well, I, I kind of go, I actually go right back to the sort of very early sort of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, there's one or two little things like these dark machines like the Telharmonian, but um, I suppose the sort of inaugural moment really is um, with the futurists, as I mentioned, and um, this guy, Luigi Russolo, who wrote the, um, this manifesto about the arts of noises. And from which, whom obviously, Art of Noise eventually yeah, took course. their, you know, took their name. Um, and I mean, futurism obviously meant something slightly when it, in terms of Gary Newman and people like that. But at the time, obviously, it was this very, very ambitious philosophy. Unfortunately, fascist in outlook in some ways, but um, just about almost like creating a kind of year zero and kind of humanity beginning again, dropping any sort of um, fixation with the past at all, you know, passeism, you know, was the worst thing, was the antithesis to futurism. And um, he invented these kind of noise-making machines as well, which are sort of prototype electronic instruments, synthesizers, you know, which operated levers to create this kind of series of like particular noises. I mean, ironically, they sound pretty terrible today. You know, and, I mean, a full traditional 19th century. But at the time, must have been revolutionary. At the time, it was, I mean, I think the very idea of doing it was revolutionary, although it was slightly anticlimactic. I mean, I think about the futurists, like the Dadaists, is that like they would stage these kind of happenings, these theatrical events, you know, and it's almost like people came along, you know, slightly kind of Philistine public would come along more or less with the purpose of deriding it, you know, they'd come armed with rotten fruit or whatever. So they're quite confrontational events. And in fact, some of the initial demonstrations of these uh, noise-making machines were a bit disastrous, you know. So so the whole thing gets off to this very faltering start, but it's a fascinating period, and it's just fascinating the kind of outlook that the futurists had on the world and how, you know, and eventually the the visions and the ideals of people like Russell were eventually born out in different ways. And then you go back, then you've got composers like Edgar Varese, and um, he's almost like spent his whole life longing for the invention of, like... um, some sort of electronic instruments to realise his musical visions, and it doesn't happen for him until he's well into his sixties. And then, because in, you know, the invention of magnetic tape, um, well, the introduction of magnetic tape after the war changes everything. Yeah. And then that's when you get Stockhausen and all this kind of like I'm Russell interested Owen. because 
um, talking about the futurists and the fact that they were creating this music for a purpose, for a cultural mm. purpose, mm. how do you think with today, mm. I mean, today the, you know, the accessibility of, of equipment to make as much, so anyone basically yeah. can make music. But but do you think that, I mean, it's slightly different, right? Because I, for me, as much as there's, for me, there's more electronic, in, not just in electronics and everything, there's more great music now than I think there's ever been in my yeah. whole, any yeah. period of my life. But <coughs> the yeah. purpose behind it is very different, right? And when you're making music for a mm. purpose, it, it, it yeah. creates, a, it's, it's a completely different objective. It's, it's, it just puts the music into a different place. Yeah. It's, I mean, obviously, there's a broad range of purposes for which electronic music is made these days, you know, and some of them sort of very commercial, some of them sort of brain deadening, <laughs> whatever. But I still think that there are people who retain, who are conscious of the kind of people I've been talking about, the Stockhausens, the um, Schaefers and people like that. And, and I think there's been a sort of resurgence of interest over the last 20 years <clears throat> in music concrete. And it's interesting that people like Delia Derbyshire yeah. was kind of posthumously you know, revived when she died about 2001, 2003, that sort of time. And kind of after her death, you know, she's suddenly become this kind of very iconic figure. And she was in the later years of her life, and I suppose even the early years of life, you know, she was, a, she was a very obscure figure. So I think there's a lot of people making music these days who are deeply conscious um, that it wasn't a sort of, I mean, sometimes I've been talking to people about this book and one or two people, they, the way that they talk me back to you is the thing that, that electronic music was something that was inaugurated by Kraftwerk in the mid-70s. Yeah, yeah, or even some people, <laughs> a guy called Gerald, you know, I think that was the, yeah. the first electronic music. So quite often people's sense of, the history and roots of electronic music is actually. But where was it? At what point was your? We're probably similar age. Ages. Yeah. So what was your introduction? Know, I'm interested. What was your introduction to electronic music? Well, I mean, I suppose when, like a lot of people, one of the earliest things I would have heard as a kid would have been Autobahn, um, you know, and that, that being a hit. Um, of course, at the same time, you had a lot of novelty things around that era as well. You had Magic Fly by Space, and you yeah. had um, Hot Butter, Popcorn, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. At the time, I probably wasn't necessarily aware of the sort of enduring cultural significance of what Kraftwerk were doing, you know, and it wasn't just a novelty thing. And I think synthesis novelties was something I'd have been conscious of uh, at a certain point. But um, but then when I was about 15, I had a kind of strong epiphany on various fronts. And I, one of the first people I listened to was Stevie Wonder. And of course, he makes magnificent use of synthesizers, you know, the Aftermoke synth, you know, and um, with Bob Margulip and Malcolm Cecil doing the kind of production program. He was... A lot of other musicians like Pete, like Pete Townsend, Rockets, you know, they tried to use his instruments and they were just so volatile and so immense, so cumbersome. They just couldn't really get to grips with them. And also, the kind of music they were making, they were always going to be a bit peripheral anyway, you know, because they were essentially guitar heroes, you know, quite often. Yeah. Whereas Stevie Wonder just creates this kind of immersive world, you know, using synthesizers. And it's, you know, it's a sound world and there's something... Almost so you were listening to that when you were a teenager? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I just suddenly got into that, that, that great series of albums he does between Music of My Mind and um, Songs and Key of Life. Um, I just bought, I just saved up from the only money I had, you know, it was paper round money. You know, I had yeah. to do four weeks of doing a paper round to afford what, one what album. Did, what year did Songs and Key of Life come out? Songs of the Kid of Life came out in 1976, um, but I would have, this is kind of retrospective, it's about 78 that I started going back and finding other things. A boy's born in Hotdown, Mississippi, surrounded by four walls that ain't so pretty. His parents give him love affection to keep him strong moving in the right direction living just enough just enough for the city 
Well, as Stevie Wonder, there were things like um, Kraftwerk, obviously a bit more in earnest. There was um, Sun Ra. I mean, I just go. You were listening to Sun Ra when you're that. Yeah, it's yeah. For, it's, <laughs> for me, I think my my introduction to electronic music was Doctor Who. Right. Yeah. So I think yeah. I was watching Doctor Who as a kid. Mm-hmm. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I used oh yeah, to, I was of obsessed course, yeah. by on the radio. Yeah. And also Human League being boiled. Yeah, 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 of course. So yeah. to me, I, yeah. you know, I, I, specifically Doctor Who, I probably think. Yeah. Also, maybe George Moroda, the Chase. I think that was the first. One of the first yeah. seven inches I ever bought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, Doctor, Doctor Who, I always it, it took for granted. I mean, you know, it was such a, I mean, it was a, a tremendous piece of music. Um, but yeah, I suppose I should sort of grow up with that. And then, uh, yeah, then there was a lot of music that was, you know, that kind of functional analog music using sort of soundtracks, that kind of thing that's powered in series like Look Around You. Um, I suppose that of all those things, yeah, something like Being Boiled, I mean, that's a really, that is a really purposeful piece of music. Yeah. And that's using electronics with, you know, with a great sense of meaning and purpose. Thank you. 
I was genuinely into the avant-garde <coughs> when I was about 15 and 20. Really? And of course, a lot of avant-garde involves the electronic music. I was a strange man. And to be honest, between the ages of about 15 and 20, I pretty much got most of what I've been still listening to since. You know, it wasn't I, 15, think, I think when you're, when you're in your can. later teens, but fifth, yeah. I, we won't reveal our ages, but I'm just thinking, because for me, I mm. was like, you know, it's a fairly cliche thing but 77 star wars came out yeah watching doctor who i was obsessed by science fiction and comic yeah. books in 2000 ad yeah so when records like human like, like human league came out crop for me they were can this vision this futurist vision yeah in a, a very different way to the original futurists you know yes um that took that that obsessed me that, yeah. i was obsessed by it and but I, it's funny i didn't listen to avant i mean for me the most avant like obviously i'm a big on you sound Adrian sherwood fan yes yes so for me that was probably my first introduction right to and uh, maybe oh no to me it's not really experimental but i'm mm. thinking probably on you sound stuff was my first introduction to more avant-garde experimental music which yeah. took me into a far took me into test the button industrial music and stuff like that yes absolutely but, yeah. um that's no, interesting <clears throat> that, that you know, summer i probably wouldn't have heard mm. until much later for me yeah person. yeah but 77 i mean i hadn't heard it by 77 but by yeah. 78 certainly um but 77 of course is the year of um, i feel love yeah, yeah you're absolutely right and it's the year of star wars and yeah and it mean 1977 even now it feels a futuristic sounding kind of year yeah, yeah. as a 77 space 77 it says um yeah and you're right i mean star wars is a huge thing and i think that there was an equivalent of star wars in terms of sensational impact yeah. with um with donna summer that year i mean you know and suddenly that kind of sound that 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 reconfigures everything. You know, well, the seventies whole... was quite seventies was quite glam, right? Mm. And mm. then getting into the eighties was quite black and white photocopy yeah. diet. And I think yeah. so. For that at that point when things mm. were getting grim, yeah, looking into the future was quite a romantic thing, right? And listen, for me, like, I, I was sick of personally. I was sick. Yeah. Of, I didn't want to hear guitars. I didn't. Mm. I, I heard. You know, I'd never touched a synthesizer, even seen yeah. these things in real life at that point in my life. Yeah. And just to hear, just to hear something that sounded completely new from a different place was uh, my remit, really. I think. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly a sort. Of, I mean, in the late seventies, um, and then Kraftwerk really get going, and then you got like the Man Machine. Yeah. Um, it's it's really starting to get going. Is synthesizer music? I mean, there's a lot of talk about 
introduction to the Moog in the, Moog synth in the late yeah. 60s. And a lot of people were using that. There's a lot of music from that period. But I still think at the late 60s, it was still considered a bit of a novelty. It's almost like a kazoo or something like that. It's the wacky world of the Moog synth. You know, yeah. it was a lot of Darth literal things like switched on Bach, you know, which is just a straightforward playing of Bach on a... That's, but, but I suppose <coughs> so I'm a little bit mm. too... I'm not, I feel old, but I'm a little bit too young for mm. when you think about Tangerine Dream and yeah. um, Emerson, Lake and Park. I mean, you know, they're the kind of mm. Rick Wakeman. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. So the whole prog rock period, yeah. I suppose, that was... Yeah, I mean, particularly when I've previously wrote about kraut rock, you know, future yeah. days. And the use of electronics in there I find fascinating because it's done... I mean, electronics are quite often sort of front and center in that music. Yeah. And it's part of the general crowd project of like reconfiguring music, rock music, whatever, and using electronics as a key component within that. Whereas I think there's a sort of resistance in English rock. So I think in the, in the 80s, I think that the, in the late 60s, the Moog synth was condemned to this slightly peripheral role because really the main business of rock was, you know, it was about the guitar, yeah. it was about guitar heroism. And the synth seemed a little bit kind of sort of, inauthentic, effeminate even, you know. Um, And, you know, had therefore to have a very subordinate role. And then that, so going back to 1977, 78, whatever, that sort of time, time, things radically changed. So on the one hand, you've got, yeah, Donna Summer and I Feel Love and the huge impact of that. You've got Kraftwerk really getting to their stride with Trans-Europe Express and then uh, The Man Machine. And then, of course, you've got that sudden introduction of cheap synths. You know, the synths suddenly sort of plummet in price. I mean, they were massively, ridiculously expensive in the late, prohibitively expensive in late 60s, early 70s, whatever. Suddenly they become widely available. Punks come along and they've got people like Daniel Miller or whatever who are just taking up these things and playing kind of synth music with a kind of punk aesthetic, you know. And it's a, um, um, and, you know, know, again, you know, like subverting traditional rock and traditional rock values. So that, you know, becomes, you know, and then, and then you know, immediately becomes very popular. You've got people like Gary Newman, et cetera, et cetera, as OMD and various people like that. And you've got that whole electropop era. But at the same time, there's a lot of resistance and loathing to all of that. There's, you know, there's... From where, what, at that period Yeah, time? I mean, you know, p- p- people like Queen had always made a point of, like, putting on the back of their albums, we do not use synthesizers. Well, they made as some if, great records using Radio it, Gaga and things, yeah, fantastic they, records with synthesizers. Well, yeah, yeah. later on, yeah, yeah. 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 So at an early point, you know, they, they, there was this sort of fear that, Using synths was somehow cheating, you know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there was definitely that kind of thing. I think there was a worry about the sort of the dehumanization, the dehumanizing effect, supposedly, of synthesizers. And craft work seemed to be sort of provocatively reveling in that, you know. Yeah. Genuine fear at the time, I suppose, broader cultural, social fear about the fact that, you know, with the machine age, that human beings are going to be thrown out, similar as we have now, that machines are going to, robots are going to come along and um, throw us all out of our jobs. Um, and there was definitely a sort of, around the late 70s, there were definitely fears about things like microchip and silicon chips and things like that, and the effect it was going to have on, on the workforce. Yeah. You know, there was actually a slightly utopian idea that, in fact, that, you know, all of this new technology would come along and there'd be far less work to do. And we could sort of, you know, like be half a dozen sort of chaps in white coats or whatever, and the rest of us would be putting our feet up and everything would be done for us, you know, because of... There'd be no none of the need for kind of you know manual drudgery that um, you know machines are just going to do all the work and um, there, didn't pan out at all like but that. Because I see um, reflections in that now. I think there's also a sense of snobbery. Mm. There must have been. It's mm. like I'm a real musician. Yes, absolutely. I'm a real musician. Yes, yeah, authenticity and authenticity means you know grappling you know with a guitar, sort of hard physical manual work that takes time. A lot of virtuosity as well. And, Great thing about a lot of synthesizers, it doesn't really, it's not particularly a sort of medium for the virtuoso. It's more about arrangement and 
of sound and like creating sound sound it doesn't necessarily involve having to play really really fast no, you know or play with two hands or two instruments you don't even have to be a musician I mean the thing is yeah, yeah, yeah. for me, I mean, no. for me yeah. what I found most inspiring about that and also you know a huge part of the whole electronic um, timeline is hip hop as well mm. and electro those things that record you know first time I heard those records I, I first time I realised I thought when I heard Art of Noise I think mm. I was like I don't have to actually learn how to play an instrument to make no, no, crazy, make crazy yes, sounds. So yeah. I was in the middle of all that. I think Art of Noise one side, Adrian Sherwood, and then Electra and mm. Run DMC. Hearing these records and yep. thinking, I just got to use my sample, my drum machine. I can make, I can be a music. Uh, well, not a musician, but I can make records. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's a really revolutionary kind of um, yeah. thing to happen to, re you know, to open the doors yeah. wide to everyone Abs to make music. Absolutely, but you know, for the kind of the, the muso, and of course it was the muso mindset that prevailed up until punk. I mean, all of this is incredibly offensive and you know, yeah, and inauthentic and inadmissible. And you know, yes, and that kind of liberation that you're talking about, liberation of all kinds of people, where it becomes more about ideas than aptitude, you know, yeah. the, um, and the technical ability. I mean, that's part of the whole point. So that that you know, since ends up sort of charming right in, you know, with the whole sort of punk revolution, really. Um, and then sort of slightly later on, on a similar sort of thing, yeah, we've got you know, sampling or DJing, things like that, you know, where, where you're composing music that's made out of pre-existing music. Yeah. You know, again, that seems, that flies in the face of like, you know, the concept of like, you know, originality. Um, you know, you're just, you're just stealing, you're just faking it. And, and, and so, genre-wise, I mean, you, you cover <coughs> pretty much it's across the yeah. board yeah that's the that's the idea yeah to try and try and touch you know at least on you know uh, it, it's impossible to represent absolutely everything and no, of course. And, and um there are people who will say why didn't you, you include this and maybe you haven't included such and such person i mean the thing is you'd need one of those ikea trolleys you know to um to get a book the size that would you know and, and i mean all the content in the book were these some of these based off of pre-existing interviews you've done yeah or, that's yeah. right yeah so i mean I, over the years yeah, i've done a lot of sort of interviews you know with various people and then sort of talked to a few people sort of more recently whatever yeah um but really it's trying more, more about kind of creating sort of narrative and it's looking at sort of looking at things from a slightly kind of aerial perspective, you know, yeah. that, that, that like, so for instance, one of the, re I mean, there's, there's, there's a great many books about rave that are kind of anecdote based yeah. um, and tell the story in great, great detail, you know, Energy Flash by Simon Reynolds, for example. Um, I, I obviously in the book this size, I can't go into that kind of depth, you know, in the whole sort of rave culture. Um, but um, so, but I'm just fascinated by the fact that rave was, you know, the eight has been kind of very sort of um, fragmented, disparate and tribal yeah. and localized and punk didn't really mistrusted things on a large scale, whatever. But then it comes to the late eighties and people like Stone Rose or whatever. Suddenly everyone wants to get back together in a field again. People sort of feel this need for kind of mass communion yeah, yeah. again. And I think that rave was very much part of that. So when I talk about rave, I'll quite often be talking about it in those terms. Because um, <clears throat> unfortunately, I don't know, I mean, I was um, kind of created a generation gap for me with rave because... I listened to and DJed a bit in the early 80s. Yeah. And for me, it was very much of a kind of an urban thing then. It was about, you know, it was late night drinking and stuff like that. It was urban. And all of a sudden, rave comes along and it's not that anymore. It's rural. It's way out beyond the M25. Yeah, yeah. It's like large aircraft hangars and there's no alcohol involved. It's Lucasade and E. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that was too much of a kind of culture shift for me to sort of take. So I didn't really do a lot of raving. However, I loved the music. You know, I love the kind of minimalism of it. Um, yeah. And, you know, I love, you know, that, um, and and I was fascinated by it as a phenomenon that um, 
But yes, I couldn't. I was never Brilliant. particularly a raver. It, it's weird because for me, my music taste has been driven by nightclubs. Yeah. So I was going out since like 13 years old. Yeah. And yeah, it was pretty much pretty much by nightclubs, really. And so for me, when I went to those, the first clubs I went to, which were Camden Palace, New Romantic, kind of mm. things like that. And then at the same time, I remember seeing like Africa Bambata DJing yeah, at yeah, the Camden yeah, Palace, yeah, right? Yeah. And I got into hip hop and electro. I was going to Tim yeah. West with things. And then from that, you know, I, I, I've I feel fortunate enough to have actually experienced that progress, that musical progression. And for me, rave and house music, specifically early Todd Terry stuff and things like mm. that, you know, they were sampling a lot of these. Yes, like, they were yes. sampling Thompson Twins, sampling mm. Yellow. And so, I, 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 for me, it was it was just a natural progression mm. from new wave, new romantic, futurist music yeah. into electro, into hip hop, into house, into rave, yeah, yeah, into yeah. rave. They they were all con- you know. I never saw yeah. any. Th- well, there are a difference, but I suppose when you're in that, it, it, in the middle of it, mm. I didn't really, you know, it's, it's, I didn't feel that separation. Definitely. Right? I mean, I think that's, yeah, there's definitely musically, you know, there is that sort of um, evolution, definitely. Um, but um, what's interesting, I suppose, about rave is then eventually leads to the phenomenon we've had recently, like things like IDM or whatever, where, yeah. you know, electronic music is far from being this kind of sort of fringe, slightly odd, bizarre. Yeah quirky things you know the way it is with sort of Brian Eno in the 70s or whatever or Kraftwerk whatever it's it's the norm you know and it's ubiquitous at this point and I mean it's yeah. interesting that Kraftwerk although they're kind of a, you know they're a sort of touring proposition they haven't really made any new music as such apart from a couple of things since 1986 yeah and I think that's because by 1986 everyone was using synthesizers even Bruce Springsteen or whatever you know would, would have synths or whatever they were completely and so Kraftwerk's their work was done really you know they can't Keep coming on saying, here's the new strange new electronic music we're making because it's not strange anymore. And so they stopped making new music. Um, and, you know, and, and then a lot of, and also a lot of the kind of inhibitions that people have about, you know, things about inauthenticity and stuff like that, they all kind of go out the window. Like you mentioned Queen, you know, I mean, yes, at one point they were synthophobic, but then they ended up using synth, same as everybody else. Um, and, you know, and it, it's, um, and then thing, things change drastically. And then also, it's, the, it's perhaps the decline of the, the idea of the guitar hero and that kind of particular sort of... But you have the synth hero. Hmm? You've got the synth hero. You've got your, like you said, your Herbie. I remember Herbie Hancock Rocket and I remember Yang yeah. Hammer doing, mm. you know, Miami Vice. They're kind of on the beat, yeah, because I was talking earlier about virtual, because, you know, Her, Herbie Hancock is obviously a virtuoso or whatever. Yeah. You know, and sometimes people use electronics who are who are kind of virtuoso, but it's more generally it's about, it doesn't depend on that. I mean, that's kind of like... It's probably you know, not as sexy, you know. Yeah, yeah. Rock and roll is about sex and drugs mm. and yeah. music. And, you know, you can't, it's not as easy. It doesn't look mm. quite sexy to stand at the front of a stage yeah, yeah, with yeah. a synthesizer yeah. as it does with a guitar yeah. thrusting yourself out. But it's strange, you know, obviously rope. when electronic music is disseminated live on yeah. that scale, um, the focus is very different. I mean, the focus isn't on... It's 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 more about the collective immersive experience. I mean, even when you've got someone like Dead Mouse or something like that, yeah, it's not. I mean, he's kind of you know he's he's practically invisible. He's kind of orchestrating the sense of it, but it isn't. It's not quite the same as um, I don't know Jimmy Page or Robert Plant or you know, that. It's, it's not quite the same as sort of focus. No, yeah, he's he's world. he's obviously you know he is the, the maker of the music and he's you know, but he's kind of curiously absent from it at the same time. You know. No, it was weird sort of paradox, you know, you get to suppose the same yeah, because I, I think with that, the big difference is a lot of the people that go to those gigs, hmm. it's, it's as much about having that collective experience. And yeah, it yeah, is yeah. A, it is a music or seeing, just, yeah. just being there and not, I, I mean. Yeah. But, you know, and there are obviously stars, people are, you know, like sort of 
you know, Norman Cook or whatever, but th th their role is kind of subtly different. It well, DJing is a completely different thing. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I was yeah. interested in, in, in terms of technology. Mm. For me, most of the records that I love, you can tell they were a, a, a piece of equipment came out and people embraced mm. that piece of equipment. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So technology has led so, leads That's so right. much electronic music, right? It, you can yeah. hear, you can, you know, you can hear a record and know what period it's from, from the drum sound yeah. or from the synthesizer you use or the yeah, sample, yeah, yeah. you know. Absolutely. That's a yeah. hugely important part, right? It is, that's, that's absolutely right. And I suppose the very strong, first strong example of that was to say in the um, kind of equipment they were able to like, get their hands on in the, in, in the, in the late 1940s after the war. Yeah. Um, but yeah, magnetic tape was a huge thing, you know, because once you've got that and you can kind of manipulate it, you can cut it up, you can slow it down, you can speed it up, you can, you're almost at the same where you can make anything out of anything. And like, you know, and there's a whole... But that's, well, that's, well, that's more the recording yeah. medium, right? Yeah. If you think about when the 808 <clears throat> came out. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rick Rubin. Just yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beastie Boys, Run yeah. DMC. 909 came out. Yeah. You know, I think in terms of you know, specific kind of areas of music that are kind yeah, of... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And maybe yeah. now it's very different because now you have access to... So anyone mm. has access to anything. Yeah. It yeah. changes the parameters completely. Yes, you know? absolutely it does. Yeah, yeah. And I was fascinated by the kind of sampling thing because another interesting is that I think that when you sort of have the whole kind of great sampling thing in the sort of mid to late 80s when it sort yeah. of becomes a big thing that it almost felt very, very sort of postmodern to me. And it almost sometimes, when people were sampling old music, it was, it was as if they were kind of saying, we can never be as good as like the classic, the great days of James Brown or whatever. It was almost like done in a kind of wistful sort of way. Um, you think so? Yeah, I kind of felt like that. I mean, it was kind of paradoxical. It was, you know, it was exciting and interesting at the same yeah. time, but I was always slightly, as a critic, I was always beset by this idea that people were kind of just constantly referencing it, it was slightly kind of kitschy and sort of postmodern no, referential got, I, I think you need to look at it i mean they were great but there were, there were certain great records and this isn't a universal thing no, no, of course. The, the group i did like there was the young gods because when the way that they sample they they sample things in a really interesting different sort of way and, and um and you know it, it was almost like they kind of you know took elements of rock and took elements of classical music and distorted them in a very sort of subtle way and has created something that felt absolutely new And 
But the, I think the context of sampling is really the, mm. the art of sampling is, an, you, you yeah. know, you can write a whole book on the art yeah, of yeah, sampling, of course, right? Yeah, yeah. But for me, I listened to early hip hop records and myself yeah. making music. Mm. For me, when I used to sample stuff, for me, I'd like think, okay, my favorite drummer mm. is John Stevens from Nucleus or from Soft Machine. Right, so I yeah. want to have him on my record, so I'd yeah, sample yeah, yeah. his drums. Yeah. Or sampling something which is like you, you listen to De La Soul, Three Feet High, and Rising. Mm. Some of their sample references at that mm. point in time was pretty that, bizarre yeah, to put, yeah. you know, at the time now it's kind of cool to reference Steely Dan, but back then having a hip hop band thing be like Steely Dan, I that's pretty weird. I interviewed them at the time and talking about that and they were saying, where did you, you know, and it said it was our parents' record. Yeah, but, but that's a, for me, <laughs> I think that, you know, I don't necessarily see it the same mm. way. I, I, I think a lot of the, the sampling greats, it's one, it's mm. about being referential, oh, yeah. it's I mean, about history, yeah. it's about teaching, it's about education, mm. you know. And at the same time, it's about flipping. Yeah. You know, the best samples, are the, the the best records, are the ones that the ones that the people take that weird record and, and you know juxtaposition of two very different things. Yeah, there were some very you know. very kind of witty things done. I think it was just a pre, it was a critical preoccupation with me and like sound realms at the time that that in a sense that that it was that, like I say it, it was a kind of instrument of postmodernism in a way. Yeah, and yeah. I suppose that we still had a hanging for modernity and futurism. Um, and that was just one sort of slight misgiving about some of the music, by no means all. I mean, loved, hip, loved hip hop. I thought yeah, hip hop was absolutely, you know, early hip hop, you know. And, and you mean looking backwards as well, just constantly? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, the, you know, some of the sort of looking at perhaps some of the sort of worse uses of samples at that time and sampling. But no, hip hop, you know, absolutely love. Um, absolutely love, you know. And I mean, the radical early days of hip hop, you know, that's yeah. the public enemy, Eddie B and Rakim, it's just. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, magnificent stuff. You've got, so you've got Prince in here as well. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Definitely. He was a big, yeah. you know, Lynn drum. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oberheim synthesizers. He yeah. Embraced them, didn't he? Yeah, that's right. And I love that. In another sound he has in as well was people like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Yeah, of course. Huge, yeah. Have you seen that Red Bull Music Academy interview? Sorry? Have you seen the Red Bull Music Academy interview with Jam and Lewis? 
Um, I think I might have had to look at it. Oh, yeah, amazing. yeah, yeah. I interviewed them myself actually recently. So um, yeah, it's quite funny. Like they're a bit like Penn and Teller. It was like Jimmy Jam, which was ninety-eight percent of the talking. No, you're right, completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's fascinating yeah. how they're made. And again, all their records driven yeah. by an eight to eight. Yeah, you know? yeah. I think one of the things we're talking about the book is just sort of to not so much juxtapose, but like how you know in, embrace you know. Synth music. I'm trying to work out how on earth. I mean, the, how many? As I said, you probably could have written, written ten yeah. volumes of this. Yeah. yeah how did absolutely. you? How on earth did you edit it into? Yeah. You, I mean, the thing is, I think what I had to do in the end was, um, it had to be kind of a sort of personal account. It had yeah. to be a sort of personal navigation, you know, th through the music. And so there's a, there's 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 an element of that really. Um, I think certain things are sort of absolutely canonical, you know, with something like this. I mean, craft work. Yes. Stockhausen. Yes. Definitely. Edgar Varese. Yes. Um, <coughs> Suicide, I think, you know, yeah, yes, you know, I mean, and, and there are certain things that come on, but other, other, other sort of things that I do talk about, yeah, it could just as easily have been, um, you know, you know, entirely different set of bands or different set of names, especially when it comes to the 21st century, and as we were saying earlier on, you know, music is now, you know, electronic music is now so prolific, there's so many practitioners, and, and, and good, they're all reaching, you know, it's more than the market can bear, sadly, Completely. there's yeah, yeah. so many people doing stuff that isn't just quite good, that's really good. And Indeed, yeah. even, in, even in a sort of just world, you know, they're probably only <laughs> get about 50 quid a year for effort. It's fun because I get often, not anger is the wrong word, but frustrated about it in that back in the day when you made electronic music, yeah. your your access to making it was, was the, the key to making it was your knowledge mm. of how to get this equipment. Yeah. Not, first of all, even knowing about it, yeah. how to find it, and having and having the cash to get it, trying to find, mm. do you know what I mean? So that's mm. what you know. The amount of electronic records then compared to now, yeah, that's out the window now because everyone knows about everything. Yeah, absolutely, you know, yeah. which is in, yeah. which in some ways is great, but at the same time for a, a, a grumpy mm. old it's like, yeah, like it's me, it's a bit yeah. like well, everyone can do it now. So. Well, I mean, I think then you've got obviously this kind of move back to kind of analog instruments. I talk about this group Metamono in the book who have yeah. this manifesto, and they will just use. They will not. You have anything. Awesome. Everything is going to be absolutely live, and everything they use is kind of vintage equipment. And um, yeah, and I think Ortec. I remember when I was talking to them, they're certainly preoccupied with the idea that like old technologies are sometimes thrown out too soon. You know, and, and they put an album out on cassette or whatever. You know, you know, what's wrong with the cassette? You know, the cassette's not fine. And, and there's a lot of like sort of. But that, is that, is that not similar? Is that not similar to, for me, actually thinking about new electronic music artists making mm. music using old equipment? Is that any different than, than questioning some artists back in the day using samples, sampling old instruments? Do you know what I mean? In a way mm. that's similar for mm. me. Like all, the, the electronic music artists now that I love are the ones that try to create something new that you know, yeah. it's harder. It's that's, that's, it's it's. It's far harder, but it, yes, it is in a sense. Yeah, um, I think when I was talking about, you know, when I was addressing what you were saying, just about that thing of it's a little bit can be a little bit too easy these days, and yeah. sometimes you can make interesting music by deliberately placing restrictions on yourself. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it, you're right. It, it is hard to. Um, I think I think obviously it's harder for listeners as well. And you can see sometimes why we live in the age of like the superstar in various ways because there is so much stuff out there. People just want, just give us one name, you know, just one thing, one thing we can yeah. settle on. And there's a lucky few people get to be this kind of the, the one name. In rock, I think Oasis, it came at a time when, you know, rock music was getting so fragmented, whatever, that when I was a music critic, people would come out to me and say, what should I be listening to? What's the, who's who's going to be the next thing? It was always singing, they never plural. They didn't want to know about 10 things, they wanted to know about one Brilliant. thing, okay. one common talking point. Yeah. And, you know, and Oasis ended up benefiting from that. Stone Roses initially did and, 
just being a kind of common talking point. And in dance music, I suppose, you know, people like Aphex Twin or Dead Mouse or whatever, Skrillex, you know, you've got certain people yeah. who benefit from, you know, take this vast disproportionate market share. Um, because I think people do want to fasten on to two or three million names, you know. But the sad thing is kind of subtlety mm. is overlooked now. You know, I think mm. for me, you know, I do a radio show every, every two weeks. Yeah. And I play 99% well, new music. Mm. I probably end up having, I go through, you know, I listen to pretty much every release yeah. that's come out. I end up having 100 tracks to play in the show. I play 50 of them. Yeah. And when, you know, I don't have time to <laughs> listen to every single track mm. that I play on the show. I probably listen to the, I skip through it. And mm. the tracks that are more subtle, I actually have to kind of put to one side. Yeah. Because I just don't have the time. I don't have the headspace. Yeah. To actually live with it. And that's the saddest thing now. You can, I'm mean, yeah. discussing with a friend this morning, someone who she's trying to finish off her album. And I'm like, actually, you know what? It's sad now, but don't spend too long doing it because the truth is you put the album out mm. it's going to be in the ether for a small amount of, pound, amount of time it's going to get yeah. forgotten yeah. you can't i think it's really hard making music now because you you know spending years making a record however good it is mm. there's just so much stuff out there it's going to get lost yeah you know? and also just the obviously the state of the economy at the moment and then you know music might end up going back to rolling stones i made this point about how Perhaps we're living in this temporary era in which you can make vast amounts of money from making music. You know, for yeah. centuries, nobody did. And maybe for centuries to come, nobody will, you know. No, I tell anyone, when I get younger mm. people asking me, you know, what should I do with me? I said, if you think you can make a living out of, of making music, forget it now. Mm. Just don't even think like that. Just make the music you love. Just make the music you want to make and just see what happens. Yeah. Just trying to make, earn a living from it. Even, you know, as a, yeah. obviously as a journalist as well, it's impossible. It's really difficult. Yeah. Things have changed so much. Yeah. But I think generally, we are... I noticed this more from other cultures, like, for instance, television. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I was complaining a bit about living in these kind of postmodern times where everything seems to be kitchen retrospective in the 80s. I don't think it's like that anymore. You know, like you saw it in telly or whatever, like old black and white shows and Twilight Zone and things like that. Yeah. And, and this kind of slightly channel four kitschy preoccupation with the past. You don't really have that anymore. Everything feels like it's about 10 days old. You know, six yeah, years yeah, old. Completely. You know, people are living very much in the now culturally, young people at the moment. Yeah. Uh, but and I think the consequence of that is not necessarily having a great, a very deep sense of the history of things. Totally. And I think maybe that's part of one of the reasons for wanting to write the book. That's really important. See, you know, yeah, totally. The, you know, how far it stretches back across time, across genre and things like that is just to try and convey some of that. All right. Great. Lovely. Big thank you to David and Trevor. David's book is out this week and limited signed copies are available to buy at roughtrade.com. Events this week and at Rough Trade East, Ross from Friends will be in the store to showcase his brand new debut album. And then on Thursday, we have a very special event with Brownswood Recordings with Giles Peterson, as well as a film screening and live performance. It's completely free entry, so do not miss that one. At Rough Trade Bristol and following on from an awesome Saturday where we were involved with Fat Lip Fest, the store plays host to the Spitfires, which is another brilliant free entry gig, actually. And I mean, seriously, don't miss these free entry gigs. We do have them probably near on every week across the shops um, and some brilliant, brilliant music showcased. And you, know, you just come in, soak up the atmosphere, grab a beer. I really, really recommend it. Nottingham and there's a bunch of stuff going on this week too but we're mainly gearing up for Gabe Guernsey who's playing in store on Saturday. He's going to be performing tracks from his debut album Physical which comes out on Friday and we're super super excited about this one. I think he's probably quite unknown to many people but this is one we're going to be pushing hard because it's just one of those ones you just you just need to discover it for your summer basically. Um, yeah go check it out the singles and stuff that are online but uh, yeah that's going to be out Friday and you can pre-order it uh, on Rough Trade exclusive clear vinyl. 
so definitely worth checking out. NYC and we're recovering from a brilliant time at Panorama this week, but back to it with a free live event on Friday with Yoke Law, followed by Cherry Glazer with Sloppy Jane, who are playing in the store in the late night slot. So a really busy one actually this past week at Rough Trade. Um, as I said, we've been at Panorama Festival, uh, WOMAD Festival in the UK. We've had Pride in Nottingham and we've had Fat Lip Fest in Bristol. We're going to be at Green Man, for those of you that are attending, come and say hello. Um, and plus also really looking forward to End of the Road, which is in, I think it's the beginning of September. That's like the last festival of the, se the season, really, certainly for us. Um, but a big reason End of the Road is going to be so great is because idols will be there, who we adore. They might even be stopping by our tent. You never know. Um, we're also just about to announce a string of in-stores with them. This is like hot off the press. In fact, if you're listening at 10 a.m. when this goes live, whatever time we put the show live, um, it might not be announced yet, but it's being announced today. So if you're listening and it's nothing's on Twitter yet, it's incoming and you heard it here first. Just don't tell anyone that I told you. Um, but anyway, all this is just too much of a reason for me not to play their new track, I think. So going to wrap up. Thanks for listening. This is Idols and the absolute stomper of a single. It's brilliantly conceived. It's called Samaritans. I'll be back next week with Nigel when we'll be revealing albums of the month for August. So until then, have a really great one. Bye.
Rough Trade Radio. Reviews and subscriptions help to support what we do. So if you like what you hear, then please rate us on iTunes.